My name is Rana Karachi Haddad. Uh, I am a uh, regional uh, industry director with the International Finance Corporation uh, based in Singapore. Uh, and uh, my current uh, work, what I do for work is I, we manage our uh, IFC's investments uh, across the manufacturing, agribusiness and services sector across Asia Pacific. So that includes 32 markets across East Asia, South Asia and the Pacific, including PNG, uh, of course, China, India, Nepal, Bhutan, Pakistan, Afghanistan. We're actually looking at one of our second investments in Afghanistan. Um, uh, you know, all across ASEAN uh, and, um, uh, and like I said, the Pacific. Uh, our portfolio size that uh, I oversee is about 5 billion at the moment. And uh, we invest about one to one and a half billion uh, every year across these three sort of core sectors. Prior to being uh, in this role, I was IFC's country manager in Singapore, built the office here to, to our big, to our big uh, Asia hub with a staff of about 120 people. Uh, but before I moved to Singapore, I actually was uh, IFC's global head of uh, fertilizer. Uh, invested in chemical in the chemical sector for IFC uh, with a focus on the Middle East and North Africa. So I was covering the MENA region uh, for about 10 years before moving to Singapore. And just to share with you my personal background, I myself uh, am from the Middle East. Uh, I am Jordanian uh, Lebanese, uh, was born in, in Amman, Jordan, and yes, and I do speak Arabic uh, and French as well. Um, and uh, so had been covering commercially the Middle East for quite some time before I've been to just about all of the countries in the Middle East for work or other reasons, uh, including uh, um, all of the Gulf countries, uh, the Levant region, uh, North Africa. I think the only countries I have not been to uh, are Libya, uh, Yemen, um, uh, but otherwise have have been to uh, and actually had been to Syria uh, pre-conflict as well. So that's just a little bit of background about myself and I think probably the reason I was asked to come and give a talk. What I'd like to do today is give you a perspective on the Middle East region. I know here in Singapore many of you look at the Middle East really from the lens of the Gulf uh, and that's really uh, you know obviously where a lot of the natural resources come from, oil and gas, a uh, major source of reserves for oil and gas. Uh, uh, and, uh, but uh, I'm gonna expand uh, the discussion today to the entire region. And why do I think that's important? I think a lot of what happens and a lot of the dialogue that happens uh, with the Gulf countries uh, also uh, is impacted by the economic and geopolitical events in the broader MENA region. They are all inextricably linked. Interestingly, I would say that is the only region uh, that we can think of right now where all of the countries uh, there all speak Arabic, right? It's all, their, that's there uh, from Mauritania to Morocco to Algeria, Tunisia, uh, Libya, Egypt, uh, and all the way to the Gulf, their national language is Arabic. However, if you go from country to country, the Arabic spoken in Mauritania could not, will not be the same as the Arabic spoken in Jordan, nor will that be the same as the Arabic spoken in, uh, in the Gulf. 
interestingly enough, each country has almost adopted its own dialect in that language. And I think that creates, and probably if you step back and if you look at the region, you say, okay, they're all you know, these Arab countries. Um, they, sh they all supposedly speak the same language, yet they can't understand each other. <laughs> and I think if many of us look at sort of what's happening in the region, that just gives you one sort of perspective of the challenges of, of trying to give the, the Middle East region one lens, right? So anyway, so let me okay, get started. Um, agenda. Uh, I think the the slide right after the, the first slide. Um, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of the context of the region. Um, I'll talk to you a bit about the regional challenges um, uh, that many of the countries are facing. We'll talk about opportunities in the Middle East. Uh, and then I'll talk a little bit to our strategy as well. Obviously, IFC has a footprint in the Middle East. We invest there uh, and give you a little sense of where we see opportunities and what we are trying to do and impact there. And then give you some results on the ground. And the annex I'll leave just for you if for statistics. But also one more um, bit of perspective about sort of how, how IFC works. So IFC is part of the World Bank Group. Uh, and again, part of the reasons I'm not able to be there in person is we have our annual World Bank IMF annual meetings here in Washington, D.C., and I had to come to attend those meetings. Um, and so what we try to do is we invest in emerging markets in developing countries. Uh, but what we try to do, uh, because the International Finance Corporation is what we call the private sector arm of the World Bank. What we do is we want to invest in private sector. What we our our belief is once you stimulate the private sector, that's when you would get real economic growth, right? The World Bank does the G2G, government to government lending for uh, government programs. Um, whereas what we do is we invest in private companies, private capital, uh, because that's where we think real broad-based economic growth will be. And so when we get to section four, we'll talk about how's IFC and where do we see private investment opportunities in those regions where do we think they can be really important or of the presentation okay i'll talk a little bit about you know some of the experiences uh you know since 2010 i think many of us know that uh you know the middle east and north africa region you know experienced uh, quite a bit of shocks a lot of it driven by, I think, what we all call the Arab Spring. Tunisia was the first country uh, to undergo this. And, uh, and, um, uh, and you can see, um, you know, um, uh, you can see if you look at uh, from 2010, right, uh, the, the, the uh, graph on the lower right, refugee population, right, you can see how that is significantly spiked up over the years. And it's really been post um, post uh, the Arab Spring. Tunisia, again, going back to them, they were, uh, as I mentioned, the first country that sort of kicked it off, uh, that started. It began in December of 2010. Uh, and um, we do have an office in both Tunisia and Egypt. And I was chatting with our country uh, head there not too long ago. Um, I think, it, you know, GDP growth um, has, been anywhere from 1.6 to 2.6%. Um, 
their investments have not been as strong and robust as we would like. Uh, as it says here in the second bullet point, Kai Saeed secured land, landslide victory with 73% of the votes in recent presidential elections. Um, and if I talk to my colleagues on the ground, they say that the country really, and if you may have followed the news, they had um, sort of the, the Arab Spring, um, they had sort of these fun, the fundamentalists kind of take, uh, um, um, you know, uh, gain influence in Tunisia. Uh, and now uh, what my, what people on the ground are telling me now is that the population has more or less pushed back on that uh, and moving towards a sort of more moderate type of government. Um, and so I think we all think that that's a generally a positive thing. Egypt, the big country in the region, right? If we look at the Middle East and North Africa, Egypt really is it's the home of the Arab League. Uh, it's the home of, uh, um, you know, uh, the uh, Islamic University there. Many people go to Egypt, to Cairo, to study uh, the religion. Uh, and um, of course, that Arab Spring was a bit, I would say, a larger uh, um, um, uh, event that impacted the region, probably a little bit more significantly than Tunisia. That started in, our, in January of 20, 2011. Uh, what we've seen in Egypt, and I'll talk to that a bit later, um, it really has outperformed the region um, with 5.6% growth to 6.6% growth, you know, from 2019 to 2021. And in fact, that's kind of replicating what we're seeing the growth rates in Asia. The rest of the Middle East is very, very slow rates, which you'll see, growth rates, which you will see. Um, but um, Egypt really has um, done better than the other countries. Um, and Egypt is actually, it's an interesting country because it's a country with a large population uh, with natural resources. Uh, there was a large gas find by ENI not too long ago. Um, uh, offshore in Egypt, significant reserves. I don't have the figure off the top of my head, but quite significant. Uh, it has uh, water from the Nile and it has a strategic geographic location uh, with the Suez Canal. So it's a country that one would expect much better, uh, higher economic output than it had experienced in the past, um, but good to see the 5.6% in the previous years. Uh, and of course, Syria, we all know, is still ongoing conflict. Um, since 2011, right? Uh, and as you can see here, 6.7 million Syrian refugees as of 2018. That's almost one third of the pre-war population. That's significant. Um, and then Libya, of course, um, their Arab Spring took hold in uh, February of 2011. Um, and it, there's been continuous instability since then. Um, and of course, we all hear on the news, Yemen with the ongoing conflict, um, and that's more of a sectarian conflict, right? So uh, again, turning over to the chart on the right, you can see how that has significantly translated into uh, refugee population. Now that's by host country. Before I go to the next slide, I'm gonna just give you one interesting piece of um, uh, statistics. Uh, Lebanon, which is now experiencing some protests, I don't know if you've been following the news, one third, one third of the population in the country of Lebanon are refugees. Right? In Jordan, uh, I think population about five, five or so million, two million are refugees in the country. To put it in perspective, uh, a lot of uh, obviously, you know, countries in Europe were talking about uh, taking in refugees and the challenges. 
but if you, you look at a small country like Lebanon and you think one third of their population is refugees, it's quite, quite significant and quite amazing that they've been able to manage that quantum of refugees in their countries. So anyway, so a little bit of, of context. If we slipped, if we go now to slide five, um, you know, we're seeing 2018 as a bit of a transition year, right? I've mentioned macro stabilization, um, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, in Egypt, returning to Egypt, for example, uh, we've seen some, some reforms uh, through, you know, IMF support, right? Inflation lowered from 30% to 14%. Uh, there was a reduction in the public debt to GDP ratio in Egypt. Uh, they eliminated most of the fuel subsidies, uh, which uh, interestingly passed with almost no public protests. Uh, if you follow uh, the events in Lebanon, right, what triggered these protests was uh, an increase in the taxation level uh, in the country. I think the government's trying to sort of get a hold of its fiscal and, and uh, situation, uh, but that triggered a whole host of, of, uh, of protests. And I think it's interesting that Egypt was able to pass on uh, the elimination of fuel subsidies with almost no public protests. Increase in the foreign re forex reserves uh, and of course, better tax collection. However, in that country, 32% remain in poverty uh, and 6.2% remain in extreme poverty. And we define extreme poverty of living on $1 or less a day. Real salaries have eroded by 20% as the value of the Egyptian pound has declined, uh, and that's resulted in higher cost of imports and declining uh, PPP, right? So we do see some progress, but you know, we see some, some, some need, uh, still a lot of need for improvement. Um, reconstruction in Iraq, I will tell you that for us, we do invest in Iraq. We have, a, at one of the last slides, I'll show you our investment portfolio. Uh, but we are seeing investments there. And in fact, uh, the government of Iraq has been a big advocate of increasing private investments in the country. Um, we're not seeing much outside of the region. Most of them tend to be from the region investing in the country. Um, but uh, we have been seeing, interestingly, some positive movements there. So, and of course, opportunities uh, for structural reform and sustainable inclusive growth, right? You know, there's a large youth female population. So the idea is we need to get them employed. Um, the digital economy, uh, there's a lot of room for, uh, um, uh, for, for connectivity. Um, a lot of people do have access uh, and do use mobile devices in the Middle East, um, but we don't have financial inclusion and we haven't leveraged technology to sort of create a more inclusive economy for those countries. Um, but we are seeing increased support. Like I said, if I talk to my colleagues who are running our programs on the ground, we do see increased public support for transitional reforms, right? Um, but fragility and, and conflict remain, right? As I mentioned, Yemen, uh, Libya, uh, Syria, countries right now in active uh, conflict situations. Right? Um, so it is, like I said, a year of transition. Now, if we can slip, if we can move over to um, uh, to slide seven, right? So, uh, what? Let me highlight some of the regional challenges, right? There. You look at slide seven. Uh, you look here. This is a heat map. Uh, the first one, top left, is a high, you know, unemployment rate. As you can see, 
uh, it's pretty much uh, on the uh, high level all across the region. Uh, where it gets to more green is where you get into the Gulf countries, right? The large one, the large green one uh, is Saudi Arabia. The lower right is Oman. And then, of course, um, you have the Gulf uh, countries, uh, you know, the Emirates, Kuwait, the little dot up at the top right of, of Saudi Arabia. But to the left of Oman is Yemen, uh, obviously very high unemployment rate. Uh, and uh, you see high unemployment rates in, in uh, uh, um, you know, in uh, Tunisia, uh, Libya, of course. Uh, and sadly enough, high unemployment rates in, in my country, uh, in Jordan as well. But not only do these, does the region uh, suffer from high unemployment, but if you look down to the lower left, water. Uh, water is a significant issue there, right? Um, many people say that water will be the source of the next conflict, um, not necessarily oil. So, uh, and you can see the high stress levels there. Um, and if I also turn to the lower right, um, you can see the large presence of state-owned enterprises. Uh, and we uh, are of the view that you know, the more presence of the government in industry and business, the slower the economic growth, uh, in fact. Okay. Uh, I see where I want to get moving on uh, the slides because we've got quite a few to get through. So if we move to slide eight, right, um, we see uh, quickly you can see uh, there is some growth uh, in the most, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, globally. You see middle income countries uh, growth is going. Um, rest of the world, you can see average growth rates around 2%. Um, but then if you flip to the Middle East, right, 2017-18-19 um, uh, negative growth. A lot of it driven, obviously, by the conflict. The conflict in Syria has really led to sort of negative growth, and that's pulled, uh, um, you know, Libya, Egypt, I mean, Libya, uh, uh, Syria, Yemen has pulled growth down. But unfortunately, the region as a collective also, it's been a negative uh, 2020, we expect some positive growth, um, um, but certainly not enough, right? Um, if we go now to slide nine, uh, and just to give you a comparison of the Middle East countries, the MENA countries, in comparison to the GCC, which is the Gulf countries of Saudi Arabia, uh, Oman, the Emirates, Bahrain, right? You can see. Again, not surprisingly, uh, lower left country, GDP per capita versus population, you can see to the right uh, uh, of uh, the orange bar, all of the Gulf countries, low population, uh, higher GDP output. But Qatar is the, on the extreme right because there's very few people in the country. So therefore the GDP per capita naturally bumps up because of the high gas prices. Nonetheless, the rest are. You look to the left, they're all clustered um, with high population, Egypt being obviously at the top uh, and low GDP growth. So the disparity I think is quite striking as you can see. And then you see the, the growth rates uh, of the countries. Uh, these are the GCC countries um, over. And I think the one, the top bar is, uh, I believe, uh, GDP would have to be Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia would have the highest GDP because it's not a per capita one. So, right. And if you look at the um, uh, the MENA X GDP on the left, obviously, um, if we put them on the on the same chart, 
the, the MENA XGCC obviously would be at the lower band of growth rates and the GCC at the higher band of sort of GDP growth rates. So uh, now, interestingly, if we go to slide 10, next slide, um, we do an annual doing business, right? Uh, we are about to launch our um, next doing business, and I will give you the unofficial uh, uh, results. Uh, Singapore, once again, came in at number two, which you can't tell anybody I told you because the uh, unofficial announcement is going to come in a few weeks' time. But if you look at that uh, and compare to the Middle East, North Africa region, striking, huh? Um, so uh, it's really... Um, you know, uh, they're really down at the lower end of the spectrum of growth. Uh, so we have um, the lowest ranking, uh, obviously, in Yemen at 187 uh, out of the um, 190 countries. Right? Yemen is 187 out of out of uh, out of 190 rankings. Um, the highest ranking uh, is the UAE at number 11. Um, and just to give you some things, what we see is the most common bottlenecks to the doing business rankings itself would be things like uh, insolvency, right? Uh, what is the recovery rate for insolvency in the country? Um, the ease of getting credit, right? Um, protecting minority investors, minority shareholders, enforcing of contracts. These are the kinds of things that we look at. Ease of hiring and firing labor. Um, how long does it take to establish a business? So, um, so these are the things that we look at. But in the region, the most common bottlenecks, as I mentioned, are insolvency, getting credit, uh, protecting minority interests, uh, and enforcement of contracts. And you can see um, Libya is 186. If I keep referencing my country, you can see 104. That's still not great. Uh, Morocco, not so bad at number 60. Uh, Tunisia, also okay. Um, interestingly, Morocco is higher than Saudi Arabia on the ease of doing business, and, uh, as well as Qatar, interestingly enough. Um, if we go to slide 11, we can see uh, very low levels of poverty, uh, and um, uh, um, uh, there's been a slight increase in poverty over the years that's been driven by the conflicts in Yemen and Syria. But we see a stagnating middle class. And I think we all know uh, most economists will attest to you really need a thriving middle class in order to really boost economic development. And you can see there um, the far left is Eastern and Central Asia, right? You can see a uh, population with expended per capita of higher than $15 a day. Uh, the middle is Latin America and the Caribbean, and the right is the Middle East and North Africa. And you can see you know, the stark, stark difference there. Again, continued challenges, right? Um, if we move to slide 12, try to get through this section uh, fairly quickly. What I'd like to do is leave at least about 10 minutes at the end for, for Q&A. If we move to uh, slide 12, right, um, we look at human capital as well right so not just what you know so what are what are elements of growth right of sustainable growth we see a thriving private sector that's something that we need to see uh, and the other thing would be um and that's you know um uh, indicated by the presence of soes and the ease of doing business ranking the other element of this 
this is obviously human capital, right? How is the human capital index? How is that performing in the Middle East? Uh, and there you can see, again, uh, if you compare it to its uh, um, to other regions, East Asia and Pacific, where Singapore is, right? Uh, um, you know, uh, learning adjusted years of school and expected years of school, um, much higher than what you see in the MENA region, right? Uh, and I think the only region that does worse than the Middle East and North Africa is Middle East and North Africa is the far right, which is Africa itself. Uh, learning years of school is about uh, just about five. High youth unemployment. We know that's always usually a, a recipe for social um, uh, social unrest, right? You can see um, here uh, high youth unemployment rates, right? Percentage of total ages. Uh, 15 to 24 uh, in 2017, right? Uh, and then we also extract female unemployment. I think it's quite uh, significant. Actually, what's interesting, if you look, um, uh, the uh, oil industries, again, that would be countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, uh, their uh, female uh, unemployment is very similar to the Gulf. Uh, female unemployment rate, um, but whereas the youth unemployment is significantly higher, I think we probably all could agree, myself included, we'd like to see higher female participation in the workforce. Right. Um, so, uh, and then here we've extracted the oil exporting countries, excluding the GCC, and what those oil exporting exporting countries would be would be, for example, Libya. Algeria, uh, those are oil exporting countries. I'm not sure if Egypt is in there because Egypt is natural gas, uh, but uh, but there and and Iraq would also be the other one, and that's not a GCC country. There you can see the female unemployment rate significantly higher. I think it's interesting, right? It's an interesting graph because you see um, that uh, um, where you would expect. Um, uh, the Gulf countries uh, to have a, um, you know, these countries that don't have natural resources have to employ the female population. Countries that do have natural resources seem less inclined to do so. I think those are sort of interesting sort of uh, um, dynamics that you would see. And please, if anybody has a question on any slide, please just jump in and ask. If not, I'll continue. The next slide, slide 13, we can see obviously in something else that's very important to us at the World Bank and I see is climate change. Uh, and I showed you the slide on water, right? Uh, depleting water resources. I can tell you, for example, in Jordan, um, not too long ago when they built uh, this uh, water, um, it's a canal, there's, a, there's an aquifer down at the south end of the country. Uh, it's shared between Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And I think it was around 2009-2010 uh, that uh, they, they had constructed this um, canal to bring water from this aquifer into the city in Amman. And I remember when we were looking at investing in that project, we didn't ultimately do so. But I remember the data we were looking at the time is that if they did not build this canal to serve the city of Amman, uh, the country basically was going to be out of water within a few years. It was such in dire straits. Uh, that this really became an issue of life and death for the population and for the country. I think all of the region is suffering from severe water shortages. 
not surprisingly, because, you know, it's covered uh, by desert. Um, most of it is covered by desert. So if we look at slide 13, climate change, how is that going to impact the region? So you can pick your seat, right? Renewable water resources, demand for water in the MENA region is up. As population increases, so will the demand on water resources. Refugees will increase demand on water uh, resources, right? So um, I think, uh, you know, the MENA region is not going to be immune from the impact of climate. Where you will see flooding uh, and um, uh, um, typhoons in one part of the region, you will see drought in another part of the world. And, and you know, I think that's where, um, you know, we will have challenges in the MENA region. 60% of the MENA's population lives in area with high or extremely high uh, surface water stress, 60% significant, um, and which is compared to the global average of 35%. Uh, and so, and temperatures there are expected to double in the region and rainfall is expected to increase by 40%. Region is facing a lot of challenges, but it doesn't stop there. If we go to slide uh, 14, um, security and political risk remain uh, in the region. I think that's something that most of us watch on the news. Most of us are quite familiar with, right? Um, they're quite elevated. Uh, again, here you have a heat map. Um, you can see um, Libya, uh, significant. Uh, Egypt, interestingly, you see the right hand uh, a little bit sort of on the medium. Uh, the left uh, would be higher, uh, and that's as you're getting close to the border uh, of Libya. Algeria, again, you see a mix. Um, uh, Morocco, obviously lower. It's always been a much more stable country, in fact. Um, and Jordan, uh, again, a little bit on the, you know, towards the green. Uh, and obviously Syria and Iraq uh, in high red, and same thing with, with Yemen uh, as well. Down the lower end of Saudi Arabia, down to the border of Yemen, obviously, is where you're seeing so, um, political risk. Um, we've seen now the protests in Lebanon. And as I mentioned, you know, it's not it's always had challenges that country because of the significant number of refugees. Um, Jordan and Lebanon, I think, have accepted a very, very high number of, um, of refugees, uh, Palestinian refugees and now Syrian refugees. In fact, if I could talk to the refugee situation in Jordan itself, right? Um, initially had high level of Palestinian refugees. Uh, then um, uh, when the first Gulf War took place, uh, many of the Palestinians that were living in working in Kuwait at the time uh, then came to Jordan. So they had second wave of Palestinian refugees into Jordan. Uh, then when you had uh, the second Gulf War, uh, Jordan experienced a high number of Iraqi refugees that came to live uh, in the countries. Uh, in the country. Uh, and now, uh, the more recent conflict in Yemen, we're seeing a lot of Syrian refugees in the country. So uh, I think the country, um, Jordan, is quite, um, you know, uh, um, you know, overwrought uh, in managing, but managing those refugees fairly well with a lot of international support. But nonetheless, it does put stress on the system. If I can move to slide 15, um, we see, uh, again, um, you know, the risks and what we are trying to do, right? The macroeconomic stability is a big risk there. 
slow down, uh, and again, back to the future reform trap, right? We try a bit of reforms, unsuccessful, going back to where things were. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help support inclusive growth, right? Um, work to help governments build buffers, uh, uh, apply the cascade approach, and what that cascade approach is our internal jargon, basically saying what the private sector can do, let them do it. What they cannot do, we let the governments do. So really supporting inclusive growth, which really can only be obtained uh, with a robust private sector. Security and fragmentation, right? Um, that's a risk. Uh, so we try to work with international entities and leagues and multilaterals to help support a, a broad-based dialogue. Uh, and governance, slow progress and strengthening accountability and transparency. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the World Bank is trying to work with governments to build transparency, accountability. So that's a little bit of the context and the challenges uh, in the region. Uh, but let me now move to where we see some green shoots, some opportunities, if we can go to slide 16 here. Uh, so what we try to do is uh, see, can we um, help to improve competitiveness in the country, right? MENA lags compared to OECD countries, MENA lags significantly in higher education, training, labor, market efficiency. Um, you know, a streamlined road of the role of the state is important. We need better, uh, there needs to be, have better utilized human capital opportunities for, for, for youth. So, um, so those are uh, some areas, significant areas of improvement. Where we are seeing, if you go to the chart on the right, increase in FDI, right? Um, Really, um, the only country there that's showing an increase in 2017 over 2014, again, is in Egypt. And I think that, to me, is quite important. As I mentioned, Egypt is quite strategic, right? The largest population, close to 100 million. Uh, it is the country that is, uh, sits on the Suez Canal, so a geographic strategic location. It has natural gas reserves. It has water. It can produce food. Uh, really, if you look at all of the natural endowments the country has, uh, it's quite surprising it hasn't developed better than it has. Uh, but it's good to see the growth rate uh, in 2017 over 2014. The rest of the country slight decline. But we are seeing some of this pick up, in fact. Uh, if we go to slide um, 18, uh, here, interestingly, you will see, if you look at the Middle East and North Africa, the green uh, bar, um, mobile subscribers per 100 inhabitants is higher than the world average, higher than in Latin America, right? Higher than in East Asia and the Pacific, right? Interestingly. Um, but, but if you look at use of digital payments, right? Use of e-banking, which is how we define one element of financial inclusion, right? So we try to bank the unbanked. Uh, look at where the Middle East sits, uh, just only a little bit above sub-Saharan Africa. And so a lot of room for improvement, but I think that stark difference is really notable, right? Um, so, uh, and then, you know, if you go to slide 19 uh, here, you know, we see areas of where technology can be used to transform the region, um, right? If, uh, you know, um, youth population, right? Um, you know, it, so here was a question that was posed, you know, which of the following events or developments that took place in the past 10 years 
had the biggest impact on the Arab world, right? Uh, the rise of Daesh, which is what we call ISIS, um, one, the Arab Spring, second, and the digital revolution. Look at that's number three. It shows a real opportunity uh, for financial inclusion, fintech, right? Um, it is a growing market for startup funding, right? We see a record number of deals funding in 2018, right? Um, right? Now the startups are moving into serious, um, the next serious uh, uh, round of funding. So we're seeing a lot of that. Um, 155 institutions invested in the MENA region startups. 30% of those came from outside the region. I think that's quite notable. Um, and fintech overtook e-commerce as the most actively invested industry. So some green shoes, we see some progress, right? There, I think quite interesting. Let me pause there. So with some of these sort of opportunities we see, so what are we doing in the region? Let me just share with you a little bit about how we are looking at investing in the region. If we can move to slide 21, um, right? We What we wanna try to move it is from an old, economy, which is dominated by public sector jobs, limited citizen voice, inefficient service delivery to a new economy driven by private sector-led growth, uh, empowered youth and women, tech-enabled service delivery, and modern and efficient utilities, right? So we are investing in human capital, uh, digital transformation, and of course, uh, the private sector, right? So these are our, you know, uh, um, this is our broad-based strategy uh, in the region, right? 300 million uh, job market entrance by 2050, right? If we go to slide 22, let me give you a little bit more flavor of what that means, right? So on education, right? What we want to do is focus on early years, pre-K, K through three, right? Modernizing teaching practices, right? Reforming the curricula, uh, to leverage technology for skill development, right? So, um, uh, and the support of private investments in education to help enhance the delivery. Healthcare, that's an important pillar for us, healthcare. Um, you know, we want to look to help to strengthen the health system, uh, including increased private participation there. And what we find is governments just cannot deliver the healthcare needed to the population. So we really wanna support private healthcare um, through hospitals, clinics, uh, delivery of pharmaceutical goods, right? Um, of course, supporting of refugees. Interestingly, we have managed to find private sector solutions for the refugee um, uh, challenges. Uh, social protection, right? Uh, facilitate employment in the digital economy through labor market flexibility, uh, support social insurance and flexible retirement savings schemes. schemes. Um, and uh, of course, course, um, uh, you know, uh, solutions to manage the refugee crisis. I don't think it's supposed to be Syrian sol solutions, but solutions to, to manage the Syrian refugee crisis. Right? If we go to uh, slide 23 quickly, uh, some of the things that we are looking to do, uh, these are some of our aspirations, right? Digital public goods. We are hoping to double broadband access in the region by 2021 increase the use of it, utilization of internet and mobile payments. I think if I make reference to the slide where you saw use of mo mobile uh, phones in the Middle East, very high, but yet uh, digital payments very low. So we are hoping that we can shift that data up to improve the use of, of internet banking. 
hopefully to modernize regulation uh, and utilities, right? Reform regulate regulatory apparatus to catalyze innovation, encourage competition, competition by creating space for new market entrants, and of course, entrepreneurship and government technology. Supporting digital skill development and entrepreneurship training, using technology to create opportunities for SMEs and to deliver goods and services to governments, uh, supporting investment platforms that increase seed funding fintech opportunities. Right? So these are some of our aspirations. If we go to a slide, I think that would be 25. Uh, these are just a few examples of some of uh, some of the results that we've seen on the ground, right? I won't read them all. Um, but um, you can see uh, health and nutrition services in Yemen. Uh, this was more of a public sector-led initiative. Um, but um, here, uh, the middle one, supporting refugees and host communities in Le Lebanon, right? Um, you helped a half a million Lebanese cope with the influx of displaced Syrians, uh, creating job opportunities. 72% of the Lebanese and Syrian beneficiaries felt the project improved their living conditions, right? Um, you know, uh, um, I'm trying to find a hospital expansion in Sana'a and in Cairo. So this is an IFC investment, which supported the Sana'a, which is Yemen and, and Cairo. Uh, these are two multi-specialty hospitals, each with 300 beds, and that's helped treat patients with severely underserved regions, right? This was Yemen. Yemen, the facility in Yemen was financed in 2007 with a $20 million loan. The hospital in Cairo was founded in 2009 with a US $55 million loan provided by IFC. Um, another initiative on this page that IFC has put together is IFC's partnership with the Palestinian Capital Market Authority, right? And that's something that we have been helping them to, to help improve governance. Um, and we've been providing technical support uh, uh, for for the Palestine Market Authority. We have invested, I will show you another slide, we do have quite a few investments across the region, but these are just a few that have generated some positive results. Um, if we go to the next slide, I think that's 26, you will see our portfolio in the region, right? Um, largest one obviously is Egypt, 1.5 billion. Uh, Jordan, close to 1 billion. Uh, Iraq, 250 million. Uh, Syria, 2 million. Uh, um, Lebanon, 700 million for a small country, quite a few investments. Algeria, 7 million. Um, uh, and uh, um, Yemen, you can even see 31 million. That just gives you a flavor of what we invested around the, the region. Uh, if we can go to the next one, which is the last slide, and I'll stop here and open it up for questions. These are our largest markets in MENA. So what I thought that I would like to do is kind of give you just a few statistics on those countries, right? Egypt, like we said, a key sectors being natural gas. This is contributors to GDP, natural gas, tourism, construction, real estate, manufacturing, and then information and ICT uh, technologies. So um, if uh, our um, IFC, you see that each chart has um, infrastructure, financial institutions, and mass, right? So I had mentioned at the start that I, I head up our, what we call MAS, which is not the Monetary Authority of Singapore. It's actually Manufacturing, Agribusiness and Services, MAS. Um, and that is the breakdown of our portfolio in the country in Egypt. 39% are in these Manufacturing, Agribusiness and Services sectors. 
sector, 30% in infrastructure and 30% in what we call financial institutions, where we invest in banking, non-banking, financial institutions, leasing companies. Pretty well diversified. If I move over to Jordan, um, obviously their key economic sectors, they have no natural resources, a little bit of phosphate, uh, but it's mostly um, tourism's, uh, tourism and hospitality. Second would be fertilizer because of the phosphate uh, that they have in the country. Uh, pharmaceuticals, we've invested in, in, in many uh, private sector pharmaceutical companies. One notably is Hikma. Uh, it's probably one of the best branded pharmaceutical companies in the region. Okay. Textiles. And maybe potentially shale oil. And then if you look at the chart, most of our investments in Jordan have been in infrastructure, much more heavily weighted infrastructure, almost 60%. Uh, the manufacturing, agribusiness, and services would be 35%, and that's what relates to what I said, um, healthcare, uh, uh, HICMA, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies, uh, fertilizer, very small in the financial sector. Lebanon, on the other hand, um, it's all 97% financial sector. Uh, for those of you who may be familiar with the country, it used to be the banking hub of the region, uh, and the banking sector still continues to dominate, right? 97% in, in the financial sector, only, what is it, 3% in mass. And then Iraq, uh, again, uh, dominates by infrastructure. So I think it's quite interesting to see the diversity of the economies, or lack thereof, if you look at sort of where IFC has placed and invested in. Iraq mostly has been in infrastructure and it's mostly in power plants. We've done a lot in the northern part of Iraq, the Kurdish area of Iraq as well, but also the main, uh, the non-Kurdish area. And it's mostly been in infrastructure, power, telecom, a little bit in the financial sector and a little bit in, in mass. 